Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today we have a very interesting guest with a somewhat unusual topic. But before we start, I have a couple of announcements to make. First, in one of the subsequent episodes, I will be interviewing two researchers that investigate mobile DNA, or as we call it, repeats. Quite often in bioinformatics, we either pretend that uh, the repeats are not there, or we actively make sure that they are not there by uh, masking them out. But my guests want to make a case that you shouldn't do that because the repetitive DNA is important and meaningful. And since this is such an important topic that uh, affects most of bioinformatics analyses, I thought I would also solicit questions from you, dear listeners. So if you want to know something about repeats, about mobile DNA, about transposable elements, this is your chance to ask your question and get an answer from the experts. Or maybe you have some interesting experience where repetitive elements came up in one of your analysis. I'd be also very interested in hearing about those. So just send me an email. You can find my email address on the website, and I'd love to hear from you. The second announcement is that my friends in Ukraine are organizing a mini-conference. They call it a meeting. And uh, the topic is single-cell RNA sequencing and uh, organoids. They have five confirmed speakers from all over the world, a very impressive lineup including a workshop on how to build an open-source, low-cost microfluidics device for single-cell RNA sequencing. The meeting will take place in Kyiv, Ukraine at the end of September, and you can register for free until August 15th. The website for the meeting is rnabio.space, and you can also find the link in the show notes. Today, my guest is Fernando Portela. Fernando recently published his preprint about his algorithm called Nemo for designing RNA to have a particular secondary structure, what's called an RNA design problem or RNA's inverse folding problem. Uh, also, an interesting thing about Fernando is that he participates in this computer game where participants manually design RNA structures, and uh, they're actually quite competitive and often outperform uh, the specialized algorithms written by uh, the experts. Fernando, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Roman, for having me. So uh, this Eterna game, it, it is quite old, isn't it? Uh, like, I think the oldest article I came across about it was from 2012. So uh, when did you get introduced uh, to Eterna, to this game? So the, the game actually uh, started around 2010 uh, on the f- uh, footsteps, I mean, of uh, Foldit for the proteins. Uh, Richard Das from Stanford was visiting David Baker and they started talking about it. The development was in 2011. 
that's when the, the project officially started and I joined around August 2012, if I remember correctly. How did you learn about it? Uh, I was online reading uh, a blog by a guy called uh, Joe Hansen. I'm not sure if you know about him. He's the one doing this YouTube channel now called uh, It's Okay to be Smart. And he he posted once something about the, the RNA uh, puzzles uh, and this weird project Eterna. And then I just joined and I was hooked. How much did you know about RNA back then? Essentially, I think I knew RNA existed, and that's about it. I had absolutely no prior experience with any form of biochemistry or any form of uh, biological sciences. Right, and and what what is your uh, day job? What what was it back then? What what do you do? I'm still a software engineer uh, in telecommunications, mostly. And so you joined this game. What was it like? It was fascinating. It was uh, a type of problem that I thought would be uh, rather uh, easy to solve. And then I discovered that it was very subtle, that there was a lot of hidden complexities. And I thought, okay, maybe... My uh, pleasure with algorithms, and maybe I could do something. And then there was uh, the personality of uh, Riju Das himself that was quite uh, interesting. And, and specifically, there was this aspect where the, the scientists in, in the project they were communicating with the players. And I, I found that very, very compelling. So. I became really very, very much hooked up. I started uh, reading, uh, reading the actual scientific literature. I thought I would learn uh, as much as possible to to try to contribute. So you, as a as a software engineer, uh, did you come into this with the thought, oh, I could write an algorithm to automate this, or uh, did you... First of all, treat it as a game for, for humans without thinking too much about algorithms at first. I think at first I wanted to, to learn the field, essentially to, to get a sense of how things work. And I was hoping, certainly at some point, that I could contribute something uh, in terms of, okay, algorithms or software, automation, whatever it is. Uh, but rapidly, I thought I discovered it, it's extremely complicated if you go deeper and deeper. And uh, I didn't foresee that I would, uh, at some point, generate something that that would actually uh, have some good level of performance. So at first, it was it was a game. I wanted to see if uh, if my brain was still good enough to solve those puzzles. And I became quite good enough at it. Uh, I would say I'm still in the in the top hundred uh, in the rankings in the game. Um, but later on, uh, my focus uh, changed, and I I tried to participate much more into the scientific aspect uh, of the project. Yeah. So your preprint is titled "An Unexpectedly Effective Monte Carlo Technique." for the RNA inverse folding problem. And uh, 
and and so it obviously and like judging by the results it worked very well so you think you now approached more or less what you hoped for you you have now this very cool algorithm or do you think there's still a long road ahead there is still a long road ahead definitely uh it's it's an algorithm that surprised me and uh, the principal invest investigator of the of the project uh, because it achieved uh, quite a performance uh, in in with respect to a specific uh, benchmark which doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to be of direct use for uh, scientists around the world or anything like that simply means that there is a tool that potentially uh, can help to solve really really challenging design problems and uh, I tried to understand how this this actually worked and I'm not sure I have the final word on it and the tool also needs more extensions for uh, various inputs for instance or different uh, types of targets so uh, there is still a long road ahead definitely but I thought this was well I thought my principal investigator, uh, Dr. Das, uh, was very insistent a couple months ago when I presented those results to him. He was very insistent to push me to actually write it down and, and put it out there on, on the preprint and then submit it to a journal uh, for various reasons. He thought the result was interesting enough for one and as well he's trying to have some you know, public relationships like promoting uh, the fact that the non-professional scientist came to a result and is able actually to uh, write down a scientific paper. So this is, yeah, I've been uh, more pushed to it than actually is motivated myself to do this. Give us first some background on like general uh, RNA secondary structure because th this is all about se the the secondary structure of RNA, right? So what what is it? Correct. Um, well, essentially, uh, I'm not sure how backward or how deep I need to go here, but uh, it was discovered a long time ago that nucleic acids and specifically uh, RNAs have not only the capability to uh, transport information. Uh, they, some non-coding RNAs have functions that derive for, from their structure, essentially, just like proteins. So uh, it was discovered that there are some things called uh, ribozymes. So those are nucleic acids enzymes that are active, that can... Uh, yeah, just like other enzyme, uh, accelerate reactions or actually perform them entirely. Or there are some things called riboswitches, which are uh, single-stranded RNAs that change conformation depending on the uh, on the environment. Scientists have been trying to to understand how those RNAs work. Uh, one of the problems is to uh, predict, for instance, uh, from a primary structure, which is simply the sequence 
uh, how this uh, single-stranded RNA is going to fold onto itself, which is a natural consequence of thermodynamics. And another class of problems is the inverse folding, uh, which is simply given uh, a specific target structure, what kind of sequence uh, will fold into that structure. So the first problem, the folding problem, is uh, it was discovered it's solvable in polynomial time, essentially, and we get a good performance for rel relatively short structures, uh, about a few hundred nucleotides. Uh, the inverse folding problem, however, is much more complicated. It's actually, well, everyone believes it's NP-complete, so it's, it's pretty tough. And that's what also makes it interesting, I guess, because people have to find uh, methods, heuristics, or uh, approximate solutions to, to to get some some result and to design RNA sequences for certain tasks. Uh, you mentioned NP completeness, and I think it's it's a good point to define it, or or more generally NP hardness. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with these terms. Being NP hard basically means that there is probably probably because P not equal NP is not proven yet, um, but. Uh, a first approximation, a very good approximation, is that if, if something is NP-complete or NP-hard, it basically means there is probably no efficient algorithm to, to do that. Right, and so even even the forward problem, so the problem of finding the, uh, um, the secondary structure of a known RNA sequence, uh, so it's solvable in polynomial time, given some assumptions, so uh, uh, if, if there are no pseudonauts and no kissing loops and stuff like that. Uh, but in general, I think it's either proven or, or conjectured that even like in general, RNA folding itself is NP-hard, isn't it? Like if you allow pseudonauts. Including pseudonauts, probably uh, NP-hard as well, yes. Yeah. Correct. And... Uh, uh, is is this aspect typically ignored, uh, for example, in a turn and in RNA design? So in order to design an RNA, you obviously need to predict uh, how an RNA will fold. And uh, do people usually just assume that there will be no pseudonauts and kissing loops? And uh, uh, does, does this ever uh, occur in practice? Uh, in most cases, you can actually, yes, ignore pseudonauts uh, and kissing loops, typically. Uh, you either do that or you assume the presence of a specific pseudonaut or a kissing loop. Uh, uh, and then you work on, on this basis. But yes, for most practical purposes, uh, you can ignore them. They will happen, but uh, that's that's not going to destroy uh, your study usually. Yeah, and and so the inverse problem, the problem of coming up with an RNA sequence that will take a given um, secondary structure, uh, a given uh, base pairing, that problem is is in the foundation of the Eterna game. That's basically what you have to do. 
And uh, in various articles and papers about this, uh, it is often mentioned, like the potential of this problem for biomedical research and for uh, drug design. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like what are the potential applications of you know, this technology if we knew how to design RNAs? At Eterna, for instance, we've been working on uh, ribose switches. Uh, essentially, what we are trying to do is to derive the rules uh, for designing uh, multi-states uh, RNA uh, sequences so that we can actually control the expression, for instance, of a gene depending on a, f on a chemical factor that we would add uh, inside the cells or inside the solution. So that, that would allow to, to, uh, fine tune eventually some, some therapies, uh, stuff like that. Uh, recently, the, the, the big project that we have been working on for the past two years is, uh, called OpenTB. Uh, a lab in, in Stanford uh, discovered that uh, if you if you do a sampling in in blood, for instance, and you can find in in blood some micro RNAs or uh, messenger RNAs uh, still expressed there, um, there are uh, recognizable signatures of the presence of an active tuberculosis infection. And uh, we've been designing switches that would uh, essentially detect those conditions, which are pretty complex. It's it's, it's about the, the ratio of concentrations of certain strands of uh, messenger RNAs. Uh, but we, we were able to actually uh, create a, a sequence that would uh, recognize those concentrations and raise a signal. So that the direct application would be a, a diagnostic device that we hope that's the, the last hurdle that we are working on, uh, that we hope to put on a diagnostic uh, paper uh, so that we just dip this paper test inside a blood sample and then we get in a few hours uh, an answer if there is active TB or not. Because currently the, the big problem with uh, fighting this disease uh, is to actually make the diagnose itself. Uh, in, in many parts of the world, you don't have uh, the, the facilities available to uh, do the tests chemically, and it takes a very long time, culture and, and all of that, about a week or so, to actually have uh, the answer if the uh, TB is active and uh, how, how virulent it is. And if we could actually have such a diagnosis uh, spread around the world, a cheap one uh, that would be available, uh, it could help uh, fighting the disease in remote places in Africa, for instance, and it could also help uh, in the Western world where we could have uh, a a direct uh, readout of how a specific uh, therapy is uh, is working. If you have some uh, resistant uh, bacteria, some are uh, really uh, resistant to every treatment, then you can vary the response that you are uh, giving to uh, the symptoms. 
Essentially, that, that's the one big project that we've been working. There are some other uh, applications that we could imagine. Uh, the one that comes to mind is one I've been recently invited to participate to. Uh, it's about bioengineering. Essentially, uh, we plan to uh, rebuild or modify, uh, you could call that biohacking in a way, because we are trying to uh, improve on the ribosome itself. The idea is to, to improve on the ribosome, minimize it or modify it so that it has a, a better uh, performance. So, uh, so as to create anything, biopolymers of any type, biofuels, etc., etc., etc. That's and incredible. For, 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 for this project, you definitely need some really good uh, design tools. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Um, but for uh, biochemical properties of the folded RNA molecules, I guess it matters actually its precise 3D structure, which is not uh, the, the same as just the secondary structure. For example, when, when you uh, design this RNA molecule, typically... The, the whole molecule is displayed as a flat structure, right, in, in, in a plane on your screen. And uh, in reality, after forming a secondary structure, it will also uh, fold in, uh, in other ways to form this complicated 3D structure. So why is it enough to design a molecule just to have a specific secondary structure without regard to its uh, tertiary structure, which would be, of course, much more complex. But if you have just a molecule with a given secondary structure, what good is it unless you also know something about the 3D structure? You're absolutely right that a secondary structure is not going to give you directly information about the final uh, 3D uh, particle and how it's going to, to react. Um, Nevertheless, uh, you certainly need to obtain a certain uh, secondary structure, even if you have a target 3G structure, because essentially uh, most of the, the structural information um, is based on helical uh, regions where you have the base pairs are simply uh, stacked on each other just the way that almost the way they are in dna and you have those stems uh, that are capped then uh, by different kind of loops uh, and from 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 this uh, basic information of the two-dimensional structure you can derive uh, information about uh, the likelihood that you are going to get a certain uh, three-dimensional structure. So, for instance, when I, if I can come back to the, the bioengineering of the, the ribosome, it was apparently uh, noted that uh, the ribosome sequence would uh, essentially misfold or not go into the predicted 3D structure if you take it uh, outside the context of uh, a specific cell. And uh, one of the, the ideas uh, that is proposed uh, is to try to improve the, the probability of folding the correct structure by going into the 2D itself before uh, trying to work out the three-dimensional structure. 
uh, it should be noted also that we are talking about this uh two-dimensional structures and three-dimensional structures as if they would be unique but actually that's this is not the case there is always a lot of uh, thermodynamic noise and you have a sort of energy landscape where there is a ground state but typically an R, a single-stranded RNA is going to uh, flip-flop between various structures and change conformation all the time and it's simply a, a, st a statistical approximation when we when we uh, mention the minimum free energy structure is simply the the one that is most likely to appear or the one that is going to be the most uh, populous uh, uh, sample uh, within a test tube <clears throat> So, um, it's absolutely fundamental to, to try to work out what is going to be the two-dimensional structure, but that's definitely not enough. I know, for instance, there is a guy at, um, at the DAS lab, uh, the team that works for Eterna, uh, Dr. Yesselman, that uh, works uh, on a uh, three-dimensional uh, design tool called RNA Make, if I remember correctly, um, and it's definitely a, a complicated task. Maybe I can I can say a word about that because um, people probably know about Foldit, uh, which uh, where you can see those beautiful proteins in 3D and everything. Uh, the, the difficulty in predicting the three-dimensional structure of uh, nucleic acids uh, derives from uh, the fact that the backbone is a lot more complicated uh, with nucleic acids than it is for proteins. Essentially, in proteins, you have uh, two uh, dihedral angles, if I remember correctly, alpha and beta. Uh, while in, for RNA, the backbone is, uh, you have essentially seven angles at each step uh, in the polymer. Uh, not all of them are 360 degrees. There are some constraints, but essentially it's an order of magnitude more complicated to predict a three-dimensional structure for RNA than it is for proteins. You mentioned that RNA may have many possible conformations that it can fold into. And um, it actually makes sense because if the RNA folding problem is NP-hard, it means that there is no um, efficient way to find the optimal, the global uh, free energy minimum. And of course, nature would not automatically have some magical way of finding that minimum, so that necessarily means that nature will sometimes settle for a local minimum that is not the global minimum, but just there are no obvious improvements to the uh, free energy of the molecule. Um, on the other hand, for um, for naturally occurring RNAs where the form matters, uh, you think that the selection we get rid of all the RNAs that are prone to uh, misfoldings and for this alternative foldings that are undesirable. But of course, when you design your own RNA, it's on you to ensure that the, the folding process in nature can easily find your desired state. So not just that your desired state is the global minimum, 
even if it is, but that actually nature can can efficiently find it. So is this at all a consideration when designing RNAs? Is, is this considered? It is considered. Uh, I'm not sure we have currently the, the, the tools to, to get good answers for that. For instance, Nemo uh, makes absolutely no consideration of how hard it is to get to the minimum uh, free energy structure. Um, uh, other tools, I'm not aware of... Uh, well, there are some some packages that proposes uh, tools uh, that allow to uh, follow or to simulate uh, the folding of a nascent uh, RNA strand uh, from a polymerase and to predict more or less how long it's going to take uh, for the final product to actually appear and and high enough concentrations i'm not i haven't read any studies that or that that show that the the tool is actually predictive in in a in a in vivo or in vitro context i know that some tools do exist that people have tried to to solve the problem and, and there are th- some algorithms that work on that but um I'm not sure that they are developed enough at this point in time. Or uh, it could be as well that I don't know enough of the scientific literature eventually, because uh, since I'm not in the field, I I don't have perfect knowledge of what is happening there. But the last time I checked, there is no uh, sure shot for, for this problem, particular problem. And how do you verify, so you design your RNA molecule and your uh, the uh, the folding algorithm gives you a particular secondary structure and let's say that's the secondary structure you want to see but then you also need to verify this experimentally right so you can synthesize this RNA strand and obviously let it fold but how do you then determine experimentally how it actually folded and which base pairings are there there are different techniques. The 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 one uh, majorly that we've been using is uh, something called SHAPE, uh, which is an acronym, uh, Selective O2 Prime something. Uh, essentially, it's a it's a chemical probe that uh, has the property to uh, be able to test whether a specific nucleotide seems to be in uh, in a locked position or if it's freely floating around in the solution. So essentially, the idea is that we can test every nucleotide to see whether it's paired or not. Uh, that doesn't tell us exactly which other nucleotide it is paired to, but we, we get a picture of whether this nucleotide is mostly paired or mostly unpaired. And then, given a simple algorithm, we can derive what was the most probable uh, secondary structure in the test tube. And those were, um, we, we made a lot of experiments like this uh, in the first three, four years of the, of the project. 
So when uh, players in Eterna try to design their own RNAs, they have many different objectives. So at first they try to design an RNA that will satisfy the simulator, and the, the simulator uses one of these folding engines that tries to predict how this RNA sequence will fold. Um, but then they also want that when this RNA strand is synthesized, then the experiment shows that um, it folds correctly. And even there, like if the experiment shows that it didn't fold correctly, there can be so many different possibilities. So it could be that the, the model in the folding engine was wrong, or it could be that uh, the model was correct, but the nature didn't find that optimal structure, or it could be that actually there is a, you know, pseudonaut there, or it could be that, as you say, we cannot observe directly the pairing. So it could be that it actually folded into the right structure, but the algorithm inferred a different, most likely structure there. There are just so many things that that could go wrong. How, how do players uh, cope with this? And what what is the main objective, right? The main objective is what actually happens in the experiment, right? For a time, that was the the, uh, the objective. Uh, essentially, we have always known that the models that we've been using, they are imperfect. As you mentioned, uh, we are ignoring a number of factors, uh, like pseudonauts or kissing loops. Uh, there is another class of, of problems uh, with, the, with the model itself because it's, it is based on, on a paradigm called the nearest neighbor. So essentially, uh, the, the, the base assumption is that the folding and the, the free energy of uh, the structures is going to be a simple uh, sum of all the contributions of certain stacking interactions and some hydrogen bondings between the, the base pairs. It uh, turns out, in reality, there are many other factors, uh, long-range interactions, and especially uh, it is suspected that there is a number of Coulombic effects. Uh, so the models are not absolutely perfect, and there are also uh, a number of uh, factors inside loops, for instance, with uh, pairings that are not simple canonical pairings. That's what I found very fascinating when I was studying the, the 3D structures of actual natural RNAs, is that you, you can see a number of very weird structures like platforms with three or four uh, different uh, nucleobases interacting with each other. Uh, there are a number of omissions and, and oversimplifications in, in the model. Uh, part of the project uh, with Eterna was essentially to discover design rules that would uh, function globally. Uh, there were a number of heuristics that were discovered, and it was the, the subject of a paper that was published in 2014, if I remember. Yeah. Uh, where the, the players came came up with a number of rules uh, for designing single state RNAs that would guarantee or uh, not guarantee but give a better performance for for designing and those were uh, rules that were outside of the the scope of the models uh, themselves 
things that the scientists uh, didn't know. Uh, players simply tried different things and by, I would say, pattern recognition, they identified a number of features that would help uh, the sequences to fold properly into the targets. So there are multiple levels in this game. At first, when you start, it's hard enough to satisfy the simulator, the model, right? But when when you advance and you become good at satisfying the model, but then you realize this gap between the model and the reality, and then you try harder to satisfy the reality. So when, when uh, you try to satisfy the reality, do all of those solutions also satisfy the simulator or... Um, does it happen often that the simulator tells you it's wrong, but uh, you, you know it's right and the experiment tells you it's right? It happens. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I would say, a minority of cases, but it does happen that indeed some players come up with sequences that do not match the simulator, do not match the, the in silico prediction, but it does absolutely work uh, 100%, well, 99% uh, in the experiment in vitro. It does happen, yes. What makes humans so good at, at this game and at, at this problem? Because the problem is NP-hard, or, or presumably NP- Actually, the, the way it is implemented in the game is NP-hard because you have this fixed uh, basis. Uh, so it means that it is uh, quite hard for a computer to solve efficiently, but that does not automatically mean that it is easy for for humans. So, for example, you know the Boolean satisfiability problem is NP hard, but it's not that you can make it into a funny game and and people will be great at it. Uh, so, what makes this particular problem? Do you think? a good match for uh, people to, to play with and to be very good at? Hmm. Uh, that's a question. Uh, I'm not sure I can I can answer that. I would say humans are, are really stubborn. <laughs> when they see a puzzle, uh, they tend to, to spend as many hours as needed uh, to, to find the solution. And I've, I've, uh, met a few, uh, really crazy individuals in, in the Eterna platform. And there are extremely talented, uh, people from, from various backgrounds, actually. And, uh, th- there is a good amount of dedication. Some, some players, I remember, they essentially learned all the parameters uh, of of the model, they they knew them by heart, essentially. Uh, the, those are more than two hundred weird numbers, essentially, uh, matching some uh, combinations of nucleobases and structures. So I'm not sure what 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 part of of their uh, thinking process is is the actual key to to be a good uh, RNA designer. It's really hard to define, and I've been trying. I've made some hypotheses actually, uh, even in my own uh, work there with Nemo, as to what makes a uh, an agent be be it a human or a, a software one a good puzzle solver. There is a lot of experience in, in humans. They, they tend to recognize a number of uh, 
situations, a number of features more easily or to approximate them also uh, pretty well. Uh, for instance, there are millions of different kinds of uh, multi-loops, what we call multi-branched loops. Um, but the human brain is very, very good at generalizing uh, what happens inside those loops or also to notice the exceptions. Uh, the, the points where everything is a little different or very different. So I'm not sure really what makes humans so good at it, but the fact is that they are absolutely. That's very cool. Um, so you participate in this community and, and play this game. You said since 2012. Uh, yes, correct. Yeah, so, so it's been six years now. Um, how did the community evolve during this time? So based on the articles I read about the game, it was very popular when it first uh, came out. And uh, I saw estimates like hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Is, is that correct? Yes. I, I assume many of those people lost interest after a few months of playing, right? Some Some stuck. And, uh, yeah, w what did you observe and, and uh, what is the community like now? Yes, the final numbers right now uh, speak of 100,000 uh, accounts, uh, registered players. But at any one time, I would say that really active players were in the, in the thousands at most. And the people involved in the, in the science itself, it's much less than that. It's uh, possibly a few hundreds. Among them, uh, I would say two dozen actually crazy people who are really very, very much invested. Uh, me being one of them. Um, I think it's, it stayed pretty stable over the course of the years. Uh, there was an, an uptick uh, when we started the, the, the Open TB uh, project, so fighting actual disease. Uh, that was a, a big selling point, I feel. And uh, we also had at that point in time uh, a new guy in the, in the staff who was good at um, actually doing some public relationships, so contacting newspapers and news media and stuff, etc. So... There was a little uptick uh, at that moment in time. Now it's a bit uh, back down, I would say. People are still very motivated, but they are not very numerous. That's that's the way I would I would put it. Have you met uh, some of those people in real life? Yes, I did. In fact, uh, since 2015, I believe, we have a, a very small convention that is organized at uh, Stanford University. And I was present at the 2016 edition, if I recall correctly. So I met uh, a number of my co-players at that time. And it was pretty fun. It was really uh, interesting. But other than that, in, in real life, no, we, we just interact uh, through the in-game chat usually, and uh, that's it. And how much of your interaction with your co-players can be described as collaboration versus competition? 
that's the big difference I, f I feel uh, with uh, the similar game Folded. Uh, Eterna is a lot more about collaboration than it is about competition. I've been for hours and hours on end discussing some uh, lab topics with some of the players. One of them is a brilliant young guy, uh, Californian, uh, Boris. Uh, the other one is Roger. Um, there is a Danish guy, Eli. Uh, we've been chatting and chatting about uh, labs for hours on end uh, and trying to, to work out certain things together, actually. Uh, more than th there is a little part of the game that has to do with competition uh, in the rankings but most of the people interested in the lab they, they drop off this, this competition very quickly essentially so in the early days as far as I know part of the competition was that uh, each of you proposed your own RNA designs and then the community would vote on them and then the winning designs would be synthesized at Stanford and and verified whether they actually fold into the structure that they need to fall in. Is that still going on? That is not going on anymore because that was uh, part of the advances that the project actually uh, created is that uh, the folks at, at Stanford, uh, they realized that uh, only uh, synthesizing eight or 16 uh, from the, of the designs proposed by players, that was a little bit unsatisfactory and they felt bad about it. So if they started actually developing uh, better ways to synthesize and things that they called cloud labs. So for the shape experiments, uh, at the end, we had up to 800 different uh, structures that we could test at any single one time in, in, very, in every round. Um, and now uh, we have some macro IRA-based uh, technology that let us uh, test 10,000 uh, different uh, designs and structures. So. The, the old time game about, okay, the, there was a little bit, you're right, uh, some competition in terms of reputation. So the players who were uh, good at labs tended to get more votes. And people were competing about that, definitely. But this is uh, now history uh, because we have the technical, I mean, Stanford has the technical means to uh, essentially synthesize every single uh, construct that players come up with. Amazing. And so if someone after listening to this podcast decided to go and start uh, playing this game and, and, synth uh, and uh, designing RNAs, how long do you think it would take them to get roughly to the same level where you and other uh, top participants are? The puzzle solving, they, you can get there in a month, more or less, if, you, if you're dedicated and, uh, and, and you like solving puzzles, if you're a, a good Sudoku player or stuff like that, or solving Rubik's Cubes, uh, yeah, you can get there pretty easily. Uh, for the lab stuff, uh, participating to the science, then it takes a bit longer than that, a few months. Is that the disconnect between the model and the reality? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
It took me about six months before I was up to speed with with what what is the lab and what is happening with it and what is the difference uh, precisely between the model and the reality. I loved actually learning about that, but it takes some time. It takes some time and some dedication, which is why there are so so. In terms of numbers, it's definitely much less than than players for the puzzle solving part of the of the game. One of the aspects of the game, I don't know what what it's like in the labs, but uh, when you solve puzzles, then some of the nucleotides are fixed, so you don't design the RNA from scratch, but you fill in the missing bits. But some of the nucleotides are already there, and you cannot change them. Is that motivated by any practical considerations, or is this just to make the game more fun or or more accessible? One of them is purely scientific and has to do with uh, the realities of, for instance, rival switches. RNAs have the capacity to form binding pockets for small molecules, which we call aptamers. And, and those binding pockets have a very, very clearly defined uh, sequence. The, the nature of the nucleotides in those uh, binding pockets, their position and exact relationship, it's absolutely fundamental for the pocket to actually be able to bind this uh, external molecule. So you cannot change uh, those nucleotides. That's one of the reasons we may want to lock in place certain parts, certain domains in in some puzzles. Another one has to do with predicting the possible interaction that you may have with what we call uh, the uh, tails of the constructs. Depending on the experimental conditions, and the, the pipeline itself, you may need to bind uh, primers to your design so as to be able to perform PCR reactions on them. So now let's talk about your algorithm, uh, which, which you called NEMO. And I'm curious, so you've been solving these puzzles and designing RNAs uh, for six years. How long did it take you to to try and create your first algorithm? The, the, the first algorithm I tried to work on actually pretty early on. It was already in 2013, where I was trying some things based on Monte Carlo uh, tree search. Uh, it went acceptable. I, it was performing uh, decently, I would say. No, but nothing really uh, impressive or, or fantastic. And uh, the actual groundwork on, on, on Nemo, uh, I started, I think it was back in 2015, where I was playing around a different form of Monte Carlo uh, technique. Uh, but it didn't at the time pan out very, very well. And it's only very recently, uh, beginning this year, 2018, that uh, Dr. Das came back to me and tried to, to push me to produce some results. And that's when I came back to, to this algorithm and I obtained 
decent, uh, pretty, pretty good results here, uh, indeed. So uh, it started a long time ago, and it was incubating in in my head for a long time. I would say. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned Monte Carlo tree search, and. Uh... Like in general, Monte Carlo refers to this process when you generate a lot of random data and and try to uh, reason and try try to simulate your system and and reason about it this way. And and Monte Carlo tree search in particular, I think, is is used a lot of so-called artificial intelligence applications and like when playing games, which is I guess apropos if. You know, we have this Eterna game, so somehow it's natural to consider the RNA design problem as a game, and it's natural to apply algorithms that play games to this problem. So how specifically does uh, Monte Carlo tree search work in the context of RNA design? What's the general flow of the algorithm? Well... If if you consider um, the RNA design problem as a, a puzzle game, then you can apply, in theory, techniques that are... I mean, it's a subdomain of the computer science field that is interested in what we call single-player games, and it's a general game-playing uh, game algorithms. Monte Carlo Tree Search, essentially... Uh, tries to find a path uh, to effect to effectively uh, win a game most often it has been used in, in multiplayer games uh, for instance go that was the, the great craze about 10 years ago when when such techniques were applied to uh, things like go um, but uh, Gamifying the the RNA design problem is uh, is a little difficult in the sense that uh, first it's a single player and and the, the the difficult part is to find a proper move order in the sense that the the basis that you are going to define or to choose to be a certain type they are definitely going to have an influence depending on the target structure on some of other choices that you uh, make down the line. So what what do you consider as a move? So clearly you came up with a pretty good way to represent this problem as a game. So what counts as, as a move in your design? In my formulation, uh, the, the first times I, I tried to solve that with a Monte Carlo tree search, I defined the move as simply choosing uh, a certain type, either A, G, C, or U, uh, at a certain a specific position within uh, the strand. There is a, a different approach where you have you use the the, the structural information uh, associated with the target structure that you want, and and then you will define the move as being a base pair rather than a single nucleotide. That's uh, some of the design choices that you have to make early on. So do you move along the RNA strand just sequentially or in some clever order or randomly? That's that's a different choice that you can make. I was uh, for a long time trying to be smart, so to speak, uh, by trying to 
determine which of the nucleotides seems to be more important than others. Uh, when solving a problem, typically uh, the very important ones are the base pairs. Uh, that's that's an absolute. And then there are the the, the nucleotides that are close to those uh, helical regions, which we call mismatches. And their nature is also uh, pretty important because they uh, affect uh, sometimes very strongly uh, the thermodynamics of the whole construct. You can you can try to go uh, sequentially, uh, but I uh, would suspect in a in a Montague Carlo tree search uh, approach, uh, specifically the the UCT one, this is not going to fly very well. So in this game, the position is an RNA strand where some subset of uh, nucleotides have been filled, have been chosen. So you you made a certain number of moves, and therefore you filled some nucleotides, but some nucleotides are still undecided, and that is your position, right? And the Monte Carlo tree search works by exploring from a given position, so from a partially specified RNA sequence, where you yeah. can move next. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, the Monte Carlo part comes in when you decide, when you, when you try to decide which moves are good, which are bad, and so you try to decide which of the follow-up positions are good and, and which are bad, and for that you use Monte Carlo. Can you describe that process? Well, it's pretty much the way you, uh, you described it. Essentially, you use uh, random playouts, what we call playouts. Essentially, you fill everything else in the position, in the sequence, um, mostly all randomly or sometimes you use uh, heavy playouts uh, the way we call them so you're trying to use some some heuristics as to whether uh, depending on the the, the specific uh, conditions or the the, the environment uh, where you feel that certain bases are going to be more useful than some others uh, so it's hard-coded intuition, if you will. Uh, but essentially, the process is in, in every case the same. You you just sample uh, randomly, you, you play randomly, and then measure the result. Uh, the assumption being that a random sample is going to give you an idea of the actual cost function, the objective one not by uh, searching every possible uh, combination, but uh, getting a sense of uh, how good or how bad it is by throwing a few uh, samples to it and, and then making a measure. So if you are early in the game and very few nucleotides are known, and most of them are up for decision, then uh, just randomly filling the rest of the sequence with completely random nucleotides, right? It means that you're very unlikely to be anywhere close to the desired result, isn't it? Correct. So how do you deal with this? You deal with it by sampling more and more and exploring typically with uh, some form of tree search which branches are more prom promising than the others. Uh, the difficulty in, in this case here is that um, 
the, the objective cost function, so determining whether you are close to a solution or not, is not entirely clear, and it's it's pretty pretty difficult to do. We have some objective measures that are called the the base pair distance. So essentially, you 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 fold the sequence, and then you observe how many of those base pairs did I get right, and how many of those did I did I miss or did pair with something else. Uh, that measure is is certainly useful, but it's very very noisy variable. Uh, so that's the one of the difficulties. The other possibility that I explored in in the paper is to try to combine that with another notion that is called the, the delta delta g, the, the difference in uh, Gibbs free energy. So it's, you measure how far your final structure, the, the one that you obtain with your sample, is from the one that you're targeting. And that gives you usually a better sense of whether you are getting close to uh, something uh, proper, a solution or not. But this is not perfect either. But even in, in, the, in, the, in this uh, incomplete information uh, system, you, you can actually approach the solution, typically. And if in the final solution you want certain nucleotides uh, to be paired, isn't it quite inefficient to try to arrive there by chance? So instead of sampling randomly, it would make sense, for example, to sample randomly just one in the pair and choose the other one as one of those that pair well with the first one. So uh, it, it wouldn't make sense to sample randomly a pair which you know in your model do not work. Yes. Do not pair at all, right? Absolutely. Do, do you do something like that? Oh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a given, definitely. At the, at the start, when, when you generate candidate sequences, uh, you make sure that they can, at least in theory, pair the way that they should pair in the final solution. So it's not entirely random. For instance, given uh, a guanine, a G, at a certain, a certain position, if the nucleotide is paired in the target structure, you still have two possibilities uh, for a pairing partner. It can be either a cytosine, a C, or a uracil, U. So that's one of the, the, the cases where the uh, pairings are uh, ambiguous. Right, but, but still it, do, it doesn't make any sense to consider adenine in that position. Exactly. Right. So this is the Monte Carlo research where you randomly choose the yet unknown nucleotides uh, subject to some constraints so that, that they pair in the way you want them to. Correct. And, and this way you determine the um, viability or desi desirability of a certain position. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the algorithm you use in... Your uh, new tool, Nemo, uh, is something called nested Monte Carlo search. So what does the nested part mean here? Uh, nested means that you essentially explore a tree, but in a fashion that is 
I'm sorry that that is going to be very computer science centric. Essentially, you 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 explore a tree, but it is a transient one. It's a temporary one that is stored essentially uh, on the stack as you as you execute uh, the algorithm. the The other option is UCT, for instance, upper confidence bounds, uh, which are applied to trees. And in this case, you you create in memory an explicit tree. So you have nodes that are linked together in a graph and everything like that. And in the case of nested Monte Carlo, uh, you are still exploring a tree, but the exploitation is, is not explicit. You just go down and recursively you fill up uh, every uh, every nucleotides that you, you you choose your moves until you have uh, filled up everything. All the while you are uh, sampling randomly, like every Monte Carlo uh, process. So that's that's the, the the difference is the in the case of of nested Monte Carlo, you you go at it in in a recursive fashion, and you're not creating an explicit tree of your exploration. So uh, the the tree you're referring to is, you know, when playing games, we can think of the game tree, but when working with RNA, we can think of like a decision tree. So at each exactly. base, you try to decide what to put there, right? And, uh, and so the way you explore this tree is you go down to one branch, but at some point you may decide that either it's not good enough or there are other branches that you haven't explored yet and you would like to explore them more because they may contain something valuable and interesting. So you want to stop exploring the current branch and move to a different branch, right? And so is this what you're referring to? So you don't uh, store this tree explicitly, but how do you remember your progress uh, within every branch? That was for me the surprising part and why I titled it Unexpected. Uh, because precisely I don't remember uh, how good or bad certain explorations were. And I simply uh, repeat the, the, the search starting from uh, the final point of the previous uh, iteration and on which I apply some uh, heuristics that I actually derived from uh, the, the game playing experience that I had. And it's pretty effective. Essentially, uh, since you, you have played the game yourself, uh, you know what happens when you have arrived at a certain stage in, in, in the solving process and you have something that is not folding the way you want, and you have visual indications at, of where uh, things are going wrong, and you're going back to those places, and eventually you revise some of these uh, spots and try to actually uh, fix uh, the problems. And this is what I implemented in Nemo. I have this Monte Carlo technique, nested, it goes down the whole tree and plays the game fully and try to get as close as possible uh, from a solution. Uh, and at 
the end of it, uh, we don't have a solution, but I get a map of where are the spots that are uh, not folding correctly. And I have some heuristics that says, okay, in this case, it would be good to uh, revise or retries this position and this position and this spot here, those are candidates for modification, for mutation. And I can reject this new problem in the same algorithm, in the same uh, nested Monte Carlo process. And it's, it works pretty well in the end. Okay, so when exploring the tree, you never actually go back, but you go all the way through but then you restart the whole procedure again. Uh, it's a restart without being a, a full restart. Right, because you, you keep the, the sequence you arrived at, right? And then, so then the meaning of your moves changes because it's not that there are any free nucleotides that you can decide what they are, but instead of filling them, you start changing them from your from their previous value to the new value. Essentially correct, yes. Yeah. Oh. Just the way a player uh, facing the interface in the game would do. Typically, uh, you fill the structure uh, the best you can, and then, okay, something is not working the way it should. Well, you tune in that area, in the neighborhood of this area, and etc. So this uh, second iteration, when you try to fix an already decided sequence, but you try to change it to fold properly, uh, are all the nucleotides free to be changed or do you restrict the set of nucleotides you're willing to change to maybe just those that appear to be misfolding? There is this restriction uh, in the sense that uh, there are a few heuristics I use to decide which of the bases are going to be retried and which should be kept. Typically, if, if those bases folded the way they should, that is, they are paired with their actual pairing partner, that the expected pairing partner, I leave them alone because this is apparently good enough. Uh, if they are uh, unpaired and they were expected to be unpaired, I typically leave them also alone because they are doing what we're, I'm trying to achieve. Um, there are exceptions to that, but, but essentially that's the way it works, yes. And so the objective of your algorithm, and there are two objectives here. One is the operational objective function that you use in the algorithm itself, and they're clearly you have to use a model. I think you mentioned you use Vienna RNA. Yes, correct. But the ultimate goal of the algorithm, uh, is it to satisfy Vienna RNA or is it to satisfy the actual experiment? Uh, at this stage, for the in the context of this paper, it was all purely in silico, which means uh, I had to satisfy the constraints respect in re with respect to whatever engine uh, I would have been using. Uh, Vienna is, for me, the most common one because it's what we use in Eterna, 
But if I had uh, compiled uh, the engine with NuPack or with RNA structure or with some other uh, classic uh, folding engine, it would have used those rules. Yes. Right, but uh, there is no engine you you could link so that you would use the rules of nature, right? Exactly. For so far, we don't have a, a perfect model of nature, so yeah. So so all those heuristics that players come up to make the molecules fold well in the experiment, you don't have or can apply them, right? Correct. At this point, uh, those rules uh, do not affect, uh, they don't provide any advantage in, in the in silico problem. Yeah. So they are definitely ignored. If uh, that's part of the, the future work that has to be done is to tune uh, this tool eventually for uh, in vivo or in vitro applications. But before that, I still have some other uh, issues to to work on. And uh, in the paper, you talk about two variations of the algorithm. One is NMCS and the other one you call NMCSB. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two? Uh, that uh, came about when I was debugging a problem in the, in the engine. Uh, I tried to follow the, this nested Monte Carlo algorithm and I, I took notice of a specific behavior, which is that let's say you are at stage N uh, in, the, in the solving process and you reach this, this node, let's uh, name it like this, the node N, and you, you spawn, uh, you do your Monte Carlo sampling. In this case, let's assume that it was about an unpaired nucleotide. So you have four possibilities and you launch, uh, four playouts with those four possibilities, uh, so as to try to measure how good are your possibilities at that stage. And the algorithm would make a selection and go to step n plus one and repeat another sampling, but completely forgetting uh, what the sampling had achieved at stage n. And it would often happen that I would have actually a better uh, sample at the stage n than the new ones that I got randomly at stage n plus one. Uh, which I felt uh, was a little bit like losing a, a bit of information. So the the only thing I did about uh, nested Monte Carlo with best playout policy, so the NMCSB, was to say, okay, during the whole descent, the whole pros process, the nested Monte Carlo process, I will remember what was the absolute best sample uh, obtained all along, and I will not forget between every step of the of the processing. And it it proved to be pretty effective, essentially. And the heuristics you put into the algorithm, can you give us like an overview? How how many of them are there? And uh... Maybe not get into too much detail, but are there certain classes of heuristics? Yes, there are a number of heuristics uh, related to 
static uh, elements in in a, in a structure. Essentially, when 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 you have, for instance, a one-one loop, so essentially you have two stems that are separated by uh, a free unpaired nucleotide on both sides of the uh, the structure. There is what we call in eternal boost. Uh, you you place uh, guanines on both sides, GG, and this is going to be uh, a pretty stable uh, thermodynamically speaking. Those are one class of, uh, of heuristics that you typically use when you, when you start playing. I mean, probably you have yourself, when you tried the game, experienced the, the GAAA tetraloop. So essentially, in the hairpin loop, you put a G on the right side of the of the loop, and you have uh, an A opposing to it, and this is a what we call a boost, and it's uh, it's stabilizing the the structure. That's one of the the classes of heuristics that I've uh, implemented in in Nemo. Another one that I feel is pretty important is about. Uh, the decisions, yeah, as I was saying earlier, uh, making a decision as to which uh, nucleotides need to be retried or uh, mutated to try to approach a solution, to get closer to a solution. And in those cases, you typically uh, include all the bases that didn't fold as expected, but you also extend this subset by adding a few neighboring ones. Uh, so typically certain things like being involved in mismatches. I'm sorry, I would have to explain what is a mismatch, but that would get us a little bit too <laughs> far away here. Um, but there are a few, a few, a few rules, a few, uh, a few heuristics uh, that you can use to decide which bases you are going to mutate later on. I think I have a, a couple more uh, heuristics uh, in, in Nemo and all of them are essentially derived from, from player experience. Right, so these are things that you could learn just based on your experience, like the way you typically solve these problems. Um, yes. I, th I think I also read probably in your paper that because when when you play Eterna, it itself records your moves and has a, a bit of insight into how you approach or other players approach um, the the puzzle. Do you have access to that data, and is there any way to leverage that data as opposed to like things that people realize themselves and wrote up? On the wiki, uh, right? But this is something that maybe people even don't realize that uh, they have this habit, but but they actually do have it, and and it helps. Uh, so yes, uh, the data exists. Players normally don't have access to this data, but in my case, the advantage I had is that I, I became. Uh, I think it was in 2015. I became a member of the team at Stanford. Uh, the the main uh, developer for the game uh, had left the group, uh, had a, a very good opportunity. So 
the team needed somebody to to take care of the certain things of uh, future uh, developments and that's how i actually became a, a part of the team and uh, i was for a long time the maintainer of the uh, graphical uh, interface which is flash based right now it's it's being ported to html5 uh, finally, the funding arrived and we are finally coming to a, a modern technology for the game itself. Uh, so probably I will not be that much involved anymore in that part of the project. But being a, a member of the team, I had access to the, the scientists uh, at Stanford and also uh, access to uh, some of the data uh, on their servers. And yes, there are, we've been collecting, uh, movesets. So the, the way that players, uh, are approaching, uh, those puzzles. And, uh, I did actually do a little bit of anal statistical analysis on, on them. Uh, we still don't have a huge amount of data. So it's, it's a little bit short to, to give that to machine learning algorithms. But uh, I, I could see a, a few trends and I could even recognize them. Essentially, I, I was able to associate uh, this, this, these features in the data to some of my own uh, behavior or some of the beha behaviors I could recognize in some other players. Because uh, we talk about that in, in chat a lot. We, we exchange about uh, the techniques that we, we apply to solve uh, RNA puzzles. And some of us have a very uh, wildly different uh, approaches, but they, they still work in the end. And, and, uh, and the data actually uh, reflects that. It, it's quite visible. And in a scientific paper, uh, I learned, thanks to a colleague at Stanford, that uh, I should not make any claim that I cannot substantiate in, in any way or fashion. So uh, I had absolutely to, to mention that there were data supporting my ideas and specifically uh, the um, reproducing of certain uh, behaviors of players. And now that you have this tool, what are some ways in which you can apply? Like apart from the theoretical result that you got, that you, I think, improved on uh, all of the existing algorithms. Uh, apart from that, like in practice, one way I imagine is that you would use this as a first step in your lab experiments. So you would first use your tool to give sort of first approximations is something that folds according to the model and then start from there as opposed to starting from scratch to fix some things that you know may not work in the lab. That's one possible application, yeah. You're absolutely correct. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, we are planning to try to use it uh, in, a, in a different project. Uh, I'm not sure this is going to be part of uh, the Eterna platform itself, but I've been invited to try to collaborate on some uh, ribosome engineering, and we are hoping to, to be able to use this algorithm or an improvement on it uh, I would be working on so as to actually uh, 
create a different form of uh, ribosome. So, yeah, there are, there are numerous possible applications, yes. Yeah, one other benefit uh, when compared to humans that I can think of is that even if uh, humans can be algorithms on some problems, then ultimately, uh, you know, humans, they, they just don't scale well. So Agreed. if you have a problem large enough, uh, a human simply would not be able to, to comprehend it, whereas an algorithm, even if it doesn't have uh, the same number of heuristics and the same quality to its thinking, it's ultimately much more scalable. So are, are there, in practice, any problems where which are simply too large to be tackled by humans? Uh, you mean in the RNA puzzle field? Absolutely. I mean, the ribosome itself uh, is a is a complex unit. You, if I if I'm talking about the bacterial one, uh, it's a, a 70s uh, large molecule uh, that has uh, essentially three big RNAs. Uh, well, one is small; it's about 120 nucleotides. That could be handled by players on Eterna, uh, but the other ones, the the 16S and the 23S, they are respectively 1500 something and almost 3000 uh, nucleotides. That's too large of a job for, for a single human. That's, that's just huge. Uh, and I don't, I don't see that uh, human beings are going to be able to design so, something like that. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, before we end, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about? Uh, I think you pretty much covered uh, all the grounds. Yeah, I could say a word about how lucky I was to, to be supported by uh, the people at Stanford. Um, and it was a very uh, interesting experience uh, to me. As a non-academic, uh, discovering the, the world of... Um, Paper uh, publishing, for instance, because this is a, one of the parts of, uh, of the whole experience of being a scientist that the so-called citizen scientists never get or usually don't get to approach or to, to, to learn about. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was really uh, quite intriguing and, and interesting and fascinating. Uh, pretty hard as well, but... Uh, yeah, I feel I feel lucky. I would say, I enjoy it very very much. Do Do you think uh, dealing with papers and publishing? I I appreciate how uh, how much effort it takes. Do, do you think ultimately it was worth it? Oh yeah, yes, worth spending all the time and and trying to put my thoughts in a structured form that that could be uh, useful to to other people absolutely absolutely i mean it's fundamental to the to, to the entire uh, process of the scientific method and and the progress of absolutely absolutely i didn't get to to have a, a very um, uh, high level education for it's a long story but um I feel like 
it would be good for other people to understand uh, all of those factors. It's not just uh, dealing with uh, formulas and IDs. Uh, there are also uh, there's a, a reality. There there are even politics actually behind all of that. Uh, there are human. That's a human enterprise. There are relationships, connections, um, and stakes. I mean, especially I was I was surprised by by the the importance of of money and how difficult it is to obtain funding and and uh, the the inordinate amount of time that most scientists uh, spend hunting for money that that was something that that surprised me a little and and so you have your day job right so yeah. on the on the one hand you are in a sense more fortunate because you don't have to to fight for funding on the other hand of course it it takes uh uh, exactly. a good good deal good deal of your time and leaves less time for uh, science so on the balance was your job you know easier than than for an academic it was easier in the sense that uh, i had a lot of help from from actual scientists uh, when when you have a, a backup uh, at Stanford University, uh, it's all right. He can help you with a lot of details and and, and a lot of things and connect you to to the act the, the correct resources. Uh, for instance, for for this name old paper, uh, I could have done the the whole uh, runnings and the batches on my own laptop. It would have taken me maybe six weeks or something like that, but I had the chance to get access to their super supercomputer uh, at Stanford, and it took me three days. So that that was a, a pretty pretty nice boost. So I had it much easier, I would I would say, because I, I got a lot of help. And I didn't need to worry too much about oh uh, how is it going to look like. Uh, I need to publish because uh, otherwise I cannot survive. If nobody sees my papers, I will never get any funding. Blah blah blah. So yeah, I had it easy. I would say. When uh, young people consider their careers, um, would you advise them to go into academia or or pursue a route like yours? So to, to find a normal job and to keep uh, science as a hobby. In my case, uh, I went into software engineering, not really by choice. I had, when I was very young, enough talent that I could start working without any diplomas. But um, I definitely suggest people to, to learn the science. And if they, if they can, uh, yeah, stay in academia, absolutely. But there are there are economic realities that are very very different. So for everyone, but I wish I could have I could have had a career. I wish. And this, uh, for instance, this paper to me it's a it's a dream I had for a very very long time. Uh, it was nice. Wow! Congratulations hey, on thanks. your dream. <laughs> cool, Fernando. It was uh, it was very interesting, very fun to to talk to you. I love talking to you too, Ron. Thank you very much for having me.